another episode of the Behind the You podcast, and I am genuinely excited for this conversation because I'm not sure I know anyone with as much enthusiasm, passion, energy as head coach Katie Meyer for the women's basketball team at the University of Miami. Coach, good morning. Yeah, it's a great morning. Happy to be on. It's a great morning because you're doing this, right? Not just because it's a great morning because you're with me. Well, listen, I've already gotten my uh, campus loop jogging, so I'm I'm feeling great. Feeling good about myself today. I did well. Good. The endorphins are firing, right? <laughs> They are. They are. All right. So I pride myself on my preparation for these. I had a path that I was going to go down. And then in my final moments, I, I watched a video of you. I guess the University of Miami does like a TED Talks thing called Kane Talks. You did one about, I think it was at the end of 2018. So we're just going to start here and I'm going to let you explain it because I was infatuated by yours. We're starting with three words and I'm going to let you rip right after this. Seek the gap. Oh, yeah. How much time do we have on this podcast? Because uh, that's my whole mission. <laughs> yeah, that's the beauty of this is that we've got as that's why I love doing it. We have as much time as you want. But instead of going down a basketball path, we're going down a philosophical sort of intellectual cultural path. This one grabbed me and that's what this is for. So seek the gap. Talk to us. Well, it's about having a growth mentality. And I think, you know, people ask me, like, how do you have so much energy? I mean, I've been at Miami. This is my 17th season. It seems like yesterday it really does. But I love being on a university campus. I love being a part of a place of learning. And I think what happens these days, you're supposed to show up on campus and have a 1600 SATs and answer all the professor's sentences, finish their sentences before they ask the question to show off how smart you are. And I'm like, well, who's learning? Like, who in the room is learning? Because the smartest person in the room isn't the know-it-all, it's the learn-it-all. It's the person who's like saying, you know, wow, I mean, Miami is an expensive institution and I don't think I'd pay this much money if I already knew everything. So I think I really am drawn to people that are fine when you establish the gap between where they are and then where they want to be. And I love being an expert in a couple of areas in life with my players that I can seriously look at them and say, well, this is where you are right now. Now I've been at a higher place than you are. Players have been, my coaches have been. And between where you are right now and where you want to be, and, and fortunately, you know, I've done that. I have a couple gold medals. I have an ACC championship. I have, you know, All-American says it played professionally. So does my staff. So like we've done it or we bring an alumni back and it establishes that gap between where you are and where you want to be. And I want to live in that gap with those people. But on the recruiting visits, believe me, when they're sitting in my office on that closing day on the last day of the visit, I establish that gap. And then someone who doesn't want to hear that walks out of my office without the offer because I have no intention of telling someone for four years how great they are, but never have helping them grow. So, I mean, that's the long and short of it. You know, I, I asked the players like, hey, be who you are. Like, you know, you can be a very authentic in my program, be who you are, but do me a favor and see who you are because you've got to look in the accountability mirror and really understand like what, who you're looking at. Be honest and then get fired up about what you don't know instead of hiding from what you don't know or trying to avoid being called out because you don't know that play. I was like, the best days in my life are when I woke up not knowing something and I went to bed knowing something, period. Those are great days of learning. So go ahead and don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to make a mistake, but be very, very afraid to hide from it all. All right. So a couple more things. So on the recruiting side of what you just said, and I know you to be, you know, you're very transparent. You don't hide, uh, you don't hide how you feel with a recruit. You will be that transparent with them. And if it's not okay with them, then it's not okay with you. Yes. And I, I'm not saying that I'm driving that bus. I just know that they won't be happy here either. If they're not wanting to come into film room, like wanting to say, coach, you know, after a loss, text me at night, coach, what did 
I do wrong? Like, how can we be better? Like, if that's not the first thing in their minds or out of their hearts, when they haven't achieved something, they won't like me the next day because that's what I'm going to spend the next day on. You know, it's fun to fix things. Like, it's not fun to lose, but boy, oh boy, does it juice me up to fix the problem and see the sources and look in my own accountability mirror and realize I coached a bad game and go to my staff and say, y'all, I should not have stayed in zone that long. Like, we've got to do better. Like, I've got to make better decisions and everybody's in on the fix. And um, that's really those moments. Those are the moments that really all that growth occurs. So if you're a recruit and that next day after loss, you're going to try to put a hat on and pull your sunglasses down and sit in the back corner of the film room, you're not my type of kid. And then within all of this, you believe in failure as a mechanism for growth. Yeah, I mean, every coach better. It's part of it. And it's literally how much do you fear the next moment and how much do you focus on the next moment? So if you miss the free throw, what's the next moment in your head? Like, do you not want another one? Because if you don't want another one, we're in trouble. But if you miss one and you say to yourself, well, I'm an 80% shooter, so that means I'm probably going to make eight in a row. From here on out, confidence is knowing the next thing that happens will be positive. Understanding, I missed it because you know what? My balance was off. Okay, good. I fixed it. I missed it. I fixed it. Here I go. And that's where you get better. And um, I really, really don't mind those moments at all. Those are some of your best practices, some of your best film sessions, and some of your most authentic moments as a coach. Now I'm really going to put you up on the podium, Katie, because if I, I think at the end of this speech, you talked about kind of where we've gone and where we are as a society. I was just talking to my a buddy of mine today about sort of false confidence, I think is the term you use. And if we sort of gift wrap false confidence to whether it's our players, our kids, people that are around us, we are not actually serving them well. We are serving them better by maybe letting them fail, getting a bad grade, letting the accountability of making a mistake, letting it impact them instead of us as a coach or a parent or whatever, getting in the way. A, did I sort of capture that right into, you know, shape the rest of that for me. Well, yeah, and I wish it was just false confidence, but it's become irrational. It's irrational confidence, and that, you know, sets my hair on fire. Come in after a game, and we lost by 20, and we missed 30 box outs and five free throws and had 18 turnovers, and come in after a game and say, well, coach, you know what, I just, ah, I need some confidence from you. You know, I'm not, I don't feel real confident, and I'm like, you shouldn't. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't know what you want me to do. I cannot today. Now, what I can do is show you the fix, and then we'll be confident. But prior to us agreeing on what the fix is, I'm not going to give you that irrational confidence. You were two for 17, okay? Now, let's watch the two makes, and you can feel really good about yourself, but I'm not only going to watch the two makes with you. We're going to watch the 15 misses, too. And then here's what I'm really going to do for you. I'm going to go in the gym with you and just rebound for you. So now we're going at someone. We're telling them the truth. We're finding the fix and the 15 misses that they made. I'll sure I'll show the two at the beginning, the two makes, and I'll even wrap the session up by saying, hey, let's go back and look at those two makes again. I want you feeling good about yourself. But there is no way I'm ignoring the 15 misses. And I think we're doing that too much. Somebody gives a paper that's supposed to be 15 pages long and it's due on Monday and they hand it in on Wednesday and it's 11 pages and the professor docks it half a grade point. So they get a B plus instead of an A. No, like if they handed it in on time and it was 15 pages, that's a C to start. Then if it's exceptional beyond that, we go to B and A. And I just think that we've we've all just like gravitated towards average and celebrated average, just hopeful. And I, I want to be more demanding than being hopeful with these young people. I think that they actually want it. Let's transition a little bit here into something positive. Kane's drip was the motto, I think, a little bit of the summer. So I want to know who's got the most drip on your staff. 
Well, I can tell you who's got the least. That is me. I am not a drippy drip coach. I, I didn't I didn't understand the drip. It was Morgan Stroman, two ex-players of mine, which, by the way, is just fantastic that I have Morgan Stroman and Shanice Johnson. We've That's had, why you have them, right? That's what they're there for. Yes. Yep. Two McDonald's All-Americans, two ACC champions here, two, you know, incredible players. And um, they came in and they said, we have this new campaign because I was like, I want to introduce the new staff and I want it to pop and I want it to be really appealing and have to do with Miami and all that. And we talked about it on a staff retreat and then they came out with this drip and before they told me what the acronym was I thought well that's kind of almost too Miami like I you know but then they said it was disciplined real inclusive and passionate and I thought well that nailed it that absolutely nails us then that's who we are so but the drippy is I probably have to go with Momo Shanice now it's funny speaking of Shanice because this is in my in my notes when you recruited her the story goes I think she told it that and this happens across all sports right you want trying to lure a big recruit here and a program is going to be like here's what we can do for you but you sort of flipped the table on her as the story goes yeah that was really cocky of me wasn't it yeah <laughs> hey like, what are you wow. no no what are you doing for me <laughs> what are you doing for us yeah I think I followed like Gino Ariyama you know I was the next visit or something and I I came <laughs> you tapping your foot and God, I hope this goes good. Please, Shanice, I hope you bite. I hope you bite. <laughs> I honestly think authentically she knew that there was a need in the way I was saying that. And it wasn't me being confident and trying to sell some other vision. I literally was like, listen, in this recruiting class, I've got to land someone who wants to be the face of the program, who wants to carry the torch, who wants to like, what are you going to do for me? If it's not you, I need to find someone else. But there is this opening here for a coach who has a great vision but hasn't proven it yet right it was like my second recruiting class you got to take a huge leap of faith and i got to basically put the future of this program on someone's shoulders and is it you like can you do it like what are you going to do for us if you are that person and you could just see that challenge just how it smacks her and she didn't hear any bs she really thought oh my goodness like this lady's not lying and that was really intense and she's a very intense competitor so it was just good timing i guess i'll take it, it was a good win for miami that day <laughs> i was about to say so how important were her and Quanta Williams to what you have turned this into? I honestly don't think I'm still sitting in this chair if those two don't come and perform the way they did. You know, there's always going to be the timing of their success, the breakthrough. I mean, their freshman year, they were just finding their way. Shanice had a great baby, was coming off an injury. Sophomore year, we lost eight games. No, I'm sorry. We lost 11 games by five points or less, I believe, in their sophomore year. So the record didn't look that much better. But teams that we were losing by 20 and 18 and not competing against, we were coming down to the wire. And in those la the ones we lost, it was either Raquana or Shanice who took the last shot. The next year, all those games, it's either eight one year and 11 wins the next year, but the same five points or less thing, we won them all. We won the conference with the same formula, with the same players, just them making the final shots, you know, and, and going and being the three seed in the NCAA and all those great things that happened within the conference and everything else. But that is such a story of growth. It's, it's incredible. So why you kind of, I think you maybe laid out why Shanice came. Why do you think they both came at that point with you and, and your program? As you said, it was a few years in. Well, honestly, when I was recruiting Shanice, we knew about about Raquana and we had her committed and um, you know you can't really say exactly who so-and-so is but there was a little bit of a buzz going around here in South Florida because Bebe was just such
such a prolific scorer. So we could kind of tell, hey, listen, this might be the best backcourt in the country. And I remember Coach Keeger and Coach Gibbs were with me at the time. And they were like, might be. Like, Coach, if we get these two kids, they will be the best backcourt in the country. And they were for three straight years, in my opinion. Their numbers proved it. And um, when they come in together, which we did with Motley and Jessica Thomas, too, when you bring them in together, they get that formulation of this chemistry and now the quick strike looks out of our offense. And so they they were able to, very rare that two players both scored 2,000 points in their career in all four years together. Once they came and they accomplished what they accomplished, what did that allow you to do in terms of how you recruited the next wave of players? Did they open more doors? Yeah, they did. And I think it was more stylistically and more kind of the way we played because of their talent is something that, you know, I've continued to recruit to. And I think you'll see lots of that this year with this particular team. Um, I'm really enjoying this team for the same reason. So you'll see a lot of that. But, you know, we were an athletic team that didn't finish. You know, my first formula, the first couple of classes were like, okay, just get an athlete that can defend and rebound because we're getting blown out in this conference. And, you know, my job is to come in here and not get blown out first and then we'll compete and then we'll keep going up. And it was embarrassing to not be able to stop someone, right? So that was my first goal. Like, we better play defense and rebound. And I can find kids that will play defense and rebound. They won't be the top five recruits in the country. But there are, if that's all you focus on, you're going to get a high quality, high character player if you focus on those two things. Because other schools are saying, well, she doesn't score enough. She doesn't do this. I said, listen, if I have a roster full of those type of players, and then boom, we add a couple scores that are prolific, we're good. And that's exactly what happened. Speaking of blowouts and not being blown out, you're going to have to share a story of getting blown out because you gave it at the UM Sports Hall of Fame. You mind sharing what happened when I think when you faced Maryland your second year? <laughs> oh, yeah. And we're going up there this year to return to the site. Yeah, our first year here. And I mean, the team was actually, we, we were a nice team. We were a bubble team for the NCAA tournament. I thought Tamara James was fantastic. Renee Taylor was great. And, you know, there was a lot of talent. We didn't have a deep roster, but we had a couple of really superstar players and a nice supporting cast. So it was towards the end of the conference season and we had to play Duke, Carolina and Maryland and I believe it was all within a 10 day period and Maryland was the last one. I was watching Maryland warm up and I thought oh my goodness just the way they stretched, the way they carried themselves. If they won this game they were the conference champs and we were the game so they had a mission, not just to make a little bit of a statement, but to go ahead and just, you know, they had blood in their eyes were like, I was like, oh my goodness. Well, I didn't realize fast forward later on, those three teams that we played to end the conference season, in a, like they all three were in the final four and Maryland ends up winning national championship this year. But to me, it was just a conference opponent that I'm supposed to compete with. And they beat us so bad. I was really excited because we scored 65 and I thought, you know what, that's great. But they had like 120. We got doubled. It was not fun. That's not so great. And so after the game, I just was so down and I just had no idea. I'm like, what have I done? Like this Charlotte gig was kind of nice. I was winning 23, 24 games a season over at Charlotte. And this was really hard and really challenging. I had a lot of doubt and all that stuff. And you know, I just wasn't sure. But then what happens is, you know, somebody picks you up. Somebody from Miami, one of those head coaches that has a national championship ring or someone who's won several conference championships, they they grab you by the back of your neck and they're like, hey, wait a minute, we don't lose that bad here. Like, that's not what Miami does. And we picked you. Like, raise up. Like, fix this. Like, let's go. And they really get under your skin and they really challenge you or you turn on the TV and Jeremy Shockey catches the touchdown and he's throwing up the U and Ryan Braun hits a home run and he throws up the U and you watch tennis and we're winning. I think it was Audra Cohen at the time in the national championship, smacking that ball like she's mad at it. And you just realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, raise your level. And so... Fast forward, I think it was only about three years later, we went up to Maryland and they were ranked two in the country, I think. And they had a 51 game winning streak, home winning streak, and it was about to set the record. And we went in there and down five with about 30 seconds to go. Bebe hit a three. We got to stop. She looked at me thinking I was going to call a timeout, but Mo had the ball. Mo passed it to Bebe. Bebe looked at me. 
and just drained a three right in front of the bench at the buzzer and we ran off and won. And I thought, wow, now that's growth. <laughs> From getting beat by 60 to winning on their court, and that was huge. It was a lot of fun. Coaching and sports, there's just an intensity to it. There's an all-in component to it. That night, the torment, like how tormented were you? It's tough. And I'm, I literally, because of the speech I gave earlier about the gap and the growth mentality and everything. I had to live in a very large gap that night. I won't ignore it and I won't hide from it and I won't run from it. But that was a 60 point gap, right? There was a lot to really check and analyze and go all the way back to recruiting decisions and just philosophical decisions. And besides just the in-game decisions, that one went a lot deeper. Something was critically wrong and I had to have a fix, you know, and then my assistant coaches had to pick me up and get me ready for film the next morning at probably 7 a.m., you know, so it's a night where you're really wrestling with your demons and you want all the answers before you have your next film session. And um, it's tough. It's really dark. So, you know, you, there's a feeling in your gut that only coaches understand and it's, it's just a burn. It's, there's just a burn that just is occurring that deep in there and you're not going to sleep well and the, the play is going to be replaying in your head and there's just this burn. And if there's not a burn there, I need to quit because all my life is about the gap. And when you get thrown into it, and it's a big one, you better find your way out of it. And you cannot rest until you've found the fix. Well, you mentioned before, like, hey, I'm at Charlotte. I'm doing good. Now I'm here. I don't know. It's year two. It's the ACC. It's Miami. Expectations are high. That's probably not like a, a next day morning, 7 a.m. It comes all together for you. So when did you finally feel like you were on your feet? I'm in control. The program is where I want it to be. I've got this. Golly, I, I don't I don't think ever really. I mean, but like, you know, like, hey, this doubt that you had that night kind of was washed away by, okay, we're set in the right direction. I, we're, I'm in more control of what's going on. Yeah. You keep a really narrow focus and you stay in your own little bubble, right? You restore, you fix your problems first. You take care of your people first. I think there was a time I was sitting in the film room and Scott Zavitz, who used to be the SID, he called and we had won our ACC championship. And I think we were in the getting ready for the NCAA or whatever. And I'm in the film and Scott Zavitz called. And I was like, that's funny. Zavitz is calling. And he's like, you sitting down? And I said, yeah. And he was like, you just won AP National Coach of the Year. And you don't even want to know what came out of my mouth. Like, Oh my Lord. And that was like the first time I realized like on a national scope, we had done a really big thing. I remember being so naive about not even considering that anyone would even be thinking about us and our program. Like I really honestly was that narrow in my focus of what's the next game and what do I need to do? And that wasn't where I felt like I arrived, but I do remember thinking, oh wow, like this is a bigger story than just like me and this 20 people that travels to the games together. And I was happy more so for like my staff and the players in that moment too. Just like, wow, what a statement. Where's the plaque or the trophy? It's got to be in the office somewhere, right? It's not. It's in the main building, in the short center in the, in the entrance there. Just got to get a duplicate or something. Yeah, those aren't cheap. We looked into it, believe me, because we have a trophy <laughs> case. We have a trophy case over here in women's basketball. And, you know, it would be nice to have one over here for the recruits to see it. One last thing relative to that kind of story from the UM Sports Hall of Fame. You also discussed how there's a toughness and a rigidity sort of a combativeness a little bit to the U to Miami that you see as a positive, right? That that pushes or had pushed you after that moment to rise up and you embrace it. Yeah, I actually, I do a leadership once a week with my team in small groups. So they will be like, when's leadership? And it'll only be a 20 minute meeting with six, you know, six of them at a time or whatever. And, we'll, and um, it was funny because just yesterday we were talking about basically some struggles and going through things. And I had a group, my little small group, I looked at every single one of them and every one of them had had something really hard happen. You know, like they've had grief or they've had loss or they've had failure or they've had, you know, it, it just really big things. And it just happened to be that particular group was in my office. And I looked at them and I said, let me tell you something. 
every single one of you in here, like you have a story that maybe your teammates don't know, but I know it. And it makes me really love you and really trust you and really know that I can rely on you because I can't look at people that have never been through anything. I can't really trust and invest in someone if I don't know what's going to happen when it really all hits the fan. I don't know if they're going to hold up. I don't know how deep their roots are. I don't know how committed they are. I don't know if they fall down, if they really, really can get up again. But I can look at all five of you right here in this room and I'm pointing at them individually and my eyes start to well up because as I pointed at the one, I, I remember the loss of the grandmother. I pointed at the other one. I realized what they're going through back home right now. You know, And I just got so emotional and I was like, I pick you because of what you've been through because of your grit, because of your response to these things that have happened in your life. And you will hold up. And every single day I know, and one of them was Mykia Gray. And I was like, Mykia, when you went down last year with that knee, and you looked at me and I looked at you and we both had that horrible thought of, oh no, whatever. And I said, in that one moment, both of us had a choice and it was like, what's happening next? And it was not a taking a day or two of us both feeling sorry for ourselves, but then it was all about the fight. It was all about the fight. It was all about the comeback. It was all about that struggle making you stronger. And I have no doubt that part of our journey, that will be a defining moment in our journey together and in your success in the future, because you've got more grit than anyone else you're going to lace up against this year. And those type of stories really inspire me. How does that apply to the you? Well, it just isn't a soft place. I mean, it's not. If you're soft, you're not going to survive down here for whatever reason, for a thousand reasons. I don't know. But I also think that we have a, a language in our program that's tough, too. It's a, It comes right at you. It comes from the heart, but it's not sugar-coated. Um, I think there is, as I said earlier, there are a lot of young people right now that are going to hide from it. But the really, truly great ones are missing it in their lives, and it resonates with them, and it can hurt a little bit, and it might sit a little longer than they wanted to. But in the end, there's a little grin on the side of their face. There's a little smile like, wow, they really do care about me. They really won't accept average from me. And I like that feel of Miami. You find it in the head coaches meeting. You find it in the athletic department meetings. You know when you meet with our AD. You know what Blake James is all about. You know he's going to be truthful. He's going to come at you. And you've got to hold up. And then you got to respond and you've got to grow. And that is Miami. And our fans expect it from us. Our fans will come at us. And when we're successful, our fans will say, hey, that's it. That's the way to be a true cane. Like, that's a cane right there. And if they say that's a cane right there, or your ladies play like two hurricanes, that really, really means something. So speaking about all those characters, the toughness you want in your players, with the style you play and what you want, expect out of your players, how do you dig for that when you're recruiting? Like, how do you isolate and define that in terms of who's a fit and who's not a fit? Well, it's really fun to ask if they've ever had a job. That's a good question in recruiting. Hey, you ever had a job? You ever worked? Now, they might say, no, I play basketball all summer. And I was like, okay, well, what about your little high school camp for young kids or community service, anything? So I, I, I like to flush that out because I do think it, it automatically puts someone higher on my list, being honest, that they're a big-time recruit and they know that their college is going to be paid for. I mean, we're not recruiting anyone that's wondering whether they're getting a scholarship, right? They all know they're getting one. So, And their families are exhaling a little bit by that time, too, understanding that they're something they've been saving for is coming up. And so I think that um, that's one thing is like you can... Can be very, very confident and be very, very humble at the same time. If someone asks me, are you a good coach? I'm going to say, hell yeah, I'm a good coach. Like, I, of course, yes. But am I humble? Like, will I learn from another coach? Yeah. I mean, there's no, no question there too. But I don't have to pretend that I don't believe in myself so that you'll like me and think that I'm not arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I don't miss a moment to learn, but I'm, I'm humble. I'll, I'll seek a moment to learn, but I'm very confident too. And, and I think that those type of humble and hungry young people are really what you've got to 
base your culture around that they're humble enough to say, let me give back, whether it's I got to give back and, you know, mom's giving me lunch money every day. Well, I can go work at Burger King and I can pick up my lunch money and buy sneakers from that money and not have to lean on my parents. You know, that is a statement of humility to work when you already know a scholarship's coming your way. You've built this thing up now. It was, it was I think, 10 straight postseasons up to a few years ago, eight, eight NCAA. So my curiosity, easier to get it there or maintain it? It, it seems so scoping. And I think it's more so what did you do with the roster? Did you win games you weren't supposed to? You know, like regardless of whether you're getting there or you're maintaining it. I think those are things where did you win all the games you were supposed to, but did you grab a couple wins that really, you know, you overachieved? Because I think that's where you feel like the push happened. So, and they talk about postseason. And honestly, we we really were WNIT eligible last year. We just didn't feel like in the COVID year, everybody made the same decision. It didn't seem so. We really haven't missed the postseason in, in 11 years. And so we're still riding a certain wave, but we went to Louisville last year in a team that ended up going 500 for us. And um, we almost pulled off that win. We beat teams last year with Mikea out, with players in quarantine missing games, with the ACC having our schedule be Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. I mean, we just played wherever we could. We played the most games of anyone in the conference, and we're we're a bubble NCAA team last year. And it's like, with all that stuff, it was like, okay, so what? How did you perform? Did you overperform or underperform, period? And that's really where I, internally, you know, only I can really truly know that if I'm honest with myself. And there were games we underperformed last year, and there were games we completely overperformed last year. So you just want to make sure that there aren't that many underperforming games and then you feel really good about where your program's at. I think we're able to recruit to a level right now where I think this upcoming recruiting class, I can't comment on it publicly, but it's going to be one of the tops in the country and we're doing really well and I feel really good about it. And so that success of like stay being having stability in your program and having proven success over a long period of time helps you to bring in those recruits that are going to really take us to the next level because our next step is that second and third weekend in March and we all know it and we got to get there. As you are dissecting, you know, those next steps, what do you do as a staff? What are the conversations like in terms of, all right, how do we accomplish that? I mean, you got to put yourself in the position to be able to do that, right? And I think we had, we had hosted twice. And then the other years when we were really, really good, it just happened to be the year that women's basketball had neutral sites and we didn't host, you know, with the Shanice and the Bebe years, we really missed a great opportunity there to, to have it at home. So that's what your first goal is, is to build a non-conference schedule that puts you in a situation that going in the conference, you know, if you're one of the top two or three teams, four teams in the ACC, you should be hosting. You should have a home court in the first couple of rounds. So those are the first two building blocks. And then from there, you know, honestly, throw the ball inbounds in that big moment that we had at home. We inbounds the ball and we win. We let Arizona State steal it and we miss the Sweet 16 by one inbounds play. And it does come down to stuff like that. And you've got to own it and you've got to march forward and you've got to get yourself in that position again and then make the right play. Momo and Baby, like, does everyone have a nickname on your, like, is, is, is like nickname <laughs> Palooza here for you or that was theirs? I mean, like, like. They came in with those. They came in with those, but I will not yell a three-syllable name, okay? So that is for sure very hard to do as a coach, okay? A three-syllable name. Somebody comes in with the three-syllable name, like Mikea. That's not hard to say Mikea. That kind of isn't, but she's going to be Mike. Like, that's the way it's going to be. But Shanice's middle name is Monet, so her she was called Mo anyway. And then Bebe, that came in from her family. That was what they called her. So, but yeah, no. Any long, long, long name, I've got to find a way to shorten it. Any good ones on this year's team? Who do we got on this year's team? Uh, you know what? We don't have actually taken Julia, Julia Williams, and I don't yell this to her, but the nickname I've given her is the Barracuda because I have never seen such closing speed in my life. This child, if you, if you got, think you have a breakaway layup and she is behind you 
she is going to catch you. And just like the barracuda that catches my fish when I get a good one on the line and I think <laughs> I'm going to have dinner that night. And here comes this silver streak through the water. And I'm like, oh, no, there goes my fish. And I get a fish head up on my reel instead of the whole instead of my dinner right that's you can't make that can't do much with that you also mentioned before style of play i'm sure things obviously evolve year to year not it's not always the same but if that's how you play why was that the one that you kind of wanted to go with i really believe in in empowering my players with space okay and, and letting them make some reads so our system it comes to fruition when it's like players keep looking over at the coach and they walk the ball and they wait for the coach to stop everything call a play and then they're going to be a robot and i remember as a player hating those moments because i was like wow i had an idea i had an idea but oh i have to slow down i can't do my idea right and so the first couple of years at miami where if, when you're struggling and you need the play to get you the shot because your player might not make it so you're trying to figure out how you're going to get a layup or a wide open 10 footer. So you have these really complicated plays and then you play somebody and their six, four center or their six, three power forward can just switch out and deny reversal. And you're sitting there with this great play that's about to get you a layup. And then all of a sudden this amazing athlete can switch out and guard your five foot eight point guard. And she's just as quick and she's six, four and the play breaks down. So it became a little bit of a what do you do in those moments? And instead of the players at that moment only have being empowered at that moment, five, four, three, two, one, to create an opportunity for themselves, I analyzed a lot of film and I realized that we had some wide open shots, but they were early. They were early in the offense. And the more we worked the shot clock, the more we got denied and blocked. <laughs> so I was like, well, ladies, this shot was open within the first 10 seconds. You were open and you turned it down. And I have got to give you kind of the keys to the car here and be like, if you're feeling it and that's your shot, we don't need to have a travel, a turnover, or three seconds in the lane with five seconds left in the shot clock when this was a really high percentage shot for Miami. So we talked about Miami shots. And then from there, it all evolved. All right. So we had a small technical snafu, but we are a dedicated bunch here. And Katie has rejoined us from a offsite location. So we were just talking, Katie, about, you know, kind of how you picked your style of play. How do you see your players fitting that style? What's your outlook for this team? As you kind of said before, this program's kind of rolling. And I know you, you, you mentioned what the next steps are, but that's getting maybe a little ahead of ourselves as we are kind of in a preseason time window. What is your hope for this team? What's your vision? Half of the team, and actually more than half, did not compete for us last year, but I feel like I have a veteran team. And I know that sounds really odd, but it's just that the people that I turn to, to help solve the problems, the Makia Grays, the Destiny Hards, the Kelsey Marshalls, the Naomi's, the Carlos, they're back. And so the pieces that we've added aren't going to be carrying the heavy, heavy responsibility of a big time decision making and the crunch moments. Although they're capable, I don't think they need to play with that type of pressure. So if I was a newcomer to this team, I'd be so grateful for these veterans because there's tons of opportunity for the newcomers, but the veterans are kind of holding down the fort. And so I think you're going to love our style because it will allow us to play pretty free and pretty fun. And uh, so far, so good. They're having a great time. I saw this with you many moons ago. I don't know if it's still a practice of yours, but do you still keep a monitor at practice? This is going back to when I was involved with the men's basketball team that used to have like a monitor at practice and you would show video to your team during practice. I don't know if it was game film. I don't know if it was practice film, but you use that as a coaching tool. And I was wondering if it's still something you employed. Oh, yeah. Film. Sometimes you get in that film room when you have a deep dive and you got to really understand concepts. But there's all, I always have a TV and a computer right on the screen. So, like yesterday, I was putting in an offense called low motion, and I had one group and I said, All right, we're going to review low motion. You need to see it. And they said, No. And the next group that I had said, Yes. And so we ran over to the monitor real quick, and I just called up my project that I had prepared for low motion. 
And in 30 seconds, they got to see it, then they got to walk through it, and then they could compete with it. Because I have different learners. You know, Some people learn by repetition, some people learn by seeing, some people want to be told. And so I just teach in those three different ways. That's a pretty cool method. When did that start? I, I think it started when um, the film sessions got too long, and I thought, well, heck, you know, before each little segment, we can run over to the, we have a big TV screen, we roll it out there, and we... We can run over to the TV monitor and, and show the concept that we're going to go train instead of having a 40-minute film session before practice, you know, and, and that way it keeps our energy up and it's been really effective. And I guess this year they're going to allow uh, video technology on the benches. I believe that you're going to be able to teach off of an iPad through this TV sport project, you know, and they, they did it experimentally. And I think a lot of coaches are in favor of it because they're doing it in the NBA all the time. You can see a player on the bench with an assistant coach on an iPad, and they're actually watching clips of the defensive coverage or the play that that's, that's where it's going. Well, that makes it more real-time, right? Because I'm sure as a coach, there's things you, when you get into the film session after the game, you really wish you had seen it in real time. I know, and I, I know I won't be able to be the one with the iPad on the sideline, but hopefully at, at halftime or so, I'll be able to break down a few things, and that'll, that'll make it more exciting because, you know, the bottom line is the players don't want to mess up. I mean, that that's... It sounds so simple, but they don't need to be berated. They're not trying to forget a play, right? So when you're in the mess with them, and I really believe like you really establish yourself as a coach when you just get in the mess with your players. You don't point at them and keep at arm's length. You know, hey, I'm in the mess with you. If you're confused, that means I didn't coach well enough. It's, I'm not blaming you. I'm blaming me. Like, but together, let's fix this. And so that helps a lot. Be like, oh, oh, because a lot of times the players will say, but coach, I was thinking this right there. And I go, oh, wow, I just learned something. About that. That's actually a good option. Let's put that in. So it's mutual. We get macro and deep here again. And it's kind of where we started and where, where we finished. Why is this place in Coral Gables, the University of Miami, become home for you? At first, it was just a challenge. And I, I had to break through. I mean, I took on an enormous challenge in a program that was joining the ACC and had to really step up its entire commitment to basketball on both sides. I mean, men and women, I think joining the ACC was a, was a huge jump for the basketball side of athletics here. It was a necessary jump. It was an amazing decision, but we needed to bring some resources and we needed a practice facility and we needed to increase our budgets and all that stuff. And so I took on an enormous challenge that was even bigger than I thought and fought through it. And then once you fought through it and it's yours, I mean, the bottom line is I looked to my left and looked to my right and I said, I don't want anyone else coaching this team. This baby's mine. Like, I just don't, it's just, you're not going to leave something that you work so hard to build. And, and then people that said, you know what, we're with you, you know, we're, we'll make these steps with you, like not for you, with you. Like we're doing this all for the University of Miami. And there's so many people that invest in your program that hear you. But when someone responds to your vision, you say, well, I think if we do this, we can get this. We can make these jumps, these strides. And, and they say, yeah, like, let's do this and do it together. It's just a really meaningful um, relationship that you establish on campus with everybody, the administration, the, the athletics department, the ticket office, the marketing people, the training room, everybody's so involved and they're trusting your vision and, and they're in it with you. So like I said, I want to be in a mess with my players, but there's a bunch of people around here that are willing to be in a mess with me. And I appreciate that. And I respond to it. So when you take the program on the road, so to speak, when you are recruiting or you're at an event with other head coaches, how is now the program seen in terms of how you have established it and where you have taken it and how it has grown? How is the University of Miami basketball received outside of this market? 
think nationally you have like an administrator like Jen Strawley that is on the board of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association. She's on the oversight committee. She's making big decisions moving forward with the gender equity issues that came up nationally across the board with the NCAA tournament this year. We have representation on those phone calls, Blake James being huge in the transfer portal, huge with the ACC network and, and negotiating those deals. And so what the other coaches say to me is whenever they're on a committee call or in a meeting with our administration, they say, wow, do you have advocates? Like, wow, do you, you are so lucky. Like you are in the room, like when they're talking in their minds and in their hearts and their spirits, that you're in the room with them and we can tell. And I think that that's, as important as any dynamic you can ever have in athletics is that, you know, are they making decisions that are best for the University of Miami, but your voice or you're being heard or, you know, they tell me no too. It's not that they get everything, but they make great decisions, but to feel like, you know what, you're an entity that helps Miami make great decisions and you're heard. It's a big deal for a coach. What about for you? If like, if you walk into a gym, like you are now Katie Meyer year 16 at the university of Miami with a program that expects to go to, it's not even if we're going to go, we expect to go. And now it's just a matter of how far. So how is the program received maybe differently or how have you seen it grow to when you are taking it on the road, the reception you're getting? That's weird. That, remember that one moment where I got that phone call and I was like, what? Like, you're kidding. Like, I don't see myself that way. I really don't, but I do have a ton of pride in the program. And so I do think the doors that we're able to walk in and recruiting, the scheduling opportunities that we're able, I mean, this Bahamas tournament that we're in on is a big time deal. I mean, that's a big time event. There's top programs from all across the country. So to be, you know, in the mix of, of those big time tournaments, those big time matchups, the ESPN games, that type of stuff. I think that that really resonates in terms of what stage you're playing on. I will always personally remember I grew up the youngest of eight in a very humble family and I'm never going to be the oldest, right? It's just never going to be my deal. I, it's never going to be about that. It's always going to be about the group, but I am really proud of where we've pushed this program. And I'm also like really proud nationally of my assistant coaches that have gone on to become head coaches that are just crushing it out there too, because obviously it wasn't just me. I had some really talented staff along the way. Is it easy to let them go? How does that work when you're the head coach and they're leaving? <laughs> well, there's always a conversation where, and it's usually probably a year prior and it's been that way with, the, with my assistants that I've had great relationships with. It's like the year going in that spring, I kind of understand like, they're ready. And I tell them, you know, and it's not, it's not, don't let the door hit you in the butt. It's not that conversation. It's just like, listen, you're ready. And you need to spend this year watching the things that I need to deal with and making notes because you will never know, like you'll never know until you slide over and you need to kind of ask to be in a meeting. If I have a meeting or ask to listen to the marketing issues or glad hand with the donors or be on the radio and give a speech here or there, you know, like you got to start like looking at instead of like your life as an assistant coach, you know, spend a year here in this little internship year of how to be a head coach and um, make notes. And, and like, I saw coach blue, like literally in staff meetings, you'd see her face just light up and she'd be like, Oh, this is one of those moments I need to remember, you know, like, taking notes, how you have to respond to a parent or how you have to respond to a disgruntled fan or, you know, however it goes and things that they don't hit your radar. And then, you know, you don't want to be shocked by it. So those are usually, those transitions are expected and anticipated. And then at that point, you're just thrilled because you know they're ready and they got the gig and, and they're happy. You leave them alone for a while too. Like, I'm here, call me if you need me, but you don't want to be that voice in their head all the time because they got to have their own voice emerge. I'm sure they come calling at some point though. 
Yeah, I hope so, just because we're family still. You talked about, you just mentioned before, the administration, the support you get. Your last contract you signed, you made a donation, you gave back to the school. Elaborate, please. Good. I just felt that we were trying to make an awareness campaign of how to, of women's athletics. And I had always done this women's and sports banquet at Charlotte. And when Jen Charlie came, I was like, okay, Jen, I've been trying to get this thing off the ground. I think it'd be really great to elevate and celebrate women's athletics here. And Jen took it and ran with it. And But in the meantime, as we were trying to get it established, I was presented with a really nice contract. So I said to Blake, I didn't even tell Jen first. I just went to Blake James and I said, Blake, how would I do this? I want to give back. but I, And I don't, I didn't do it for my ego. I didn't want to get the credit, but I felt like it could help launch a, a different thought in fundraising at the University of Miami, which is to celebrate women's athletics. And so I asked if they made it public that they would ask for matching donations. And that was the only way. I really wanted it to be public and I thought it could really help. And so that's how we did it. And I, it really, really, really made a big difference and a huge impact. And now that women's sports banquet and luncheon is one of the best events we do. We did something around the podcast, in the podcast for that event. I said, next year, I, I got to come. I got to, I want to be at the event. Yeah. And I love that it's, it's uh, the students, uh, the stars, you know, like the student athletes get up there and they talk on a panel. And, and if you ever thought, like, if you ever had a, negative thoughts about college athletics and is it really worth all the investment all that oh my god listen to those off-the-cuff answers by these amazing women that are just strong and they just knock it out of the park and they're confident and they're they're vulnerable and they speak straight to the donors hearts and it is well worth um, investing you played in the acc that'll be more in the in the episode two version but uh, what i want to know is you played in it did you want to coach in it like miami being in the acc or making that move how special was that for you although maybe it may be a challenge at first but is it special i guess let me ask you that is it special it's so special and the acc has changed a little bit but in the, my time here i wouldn't have even looked at the miami job if it hadn't have made the move into the acc i just i always felt there was this big shift coming with the conferences and i i felt like um, there were, you know, it's funny, I probably 20 years ago sat in uh, Napa Valley uh, on vacation drinking it with some wine with some very, very dear friends who are now like an athletic director in the Big Ten and the commissioner of a conference. And it just so happened we were growing up together and uh, we talked about this mega thing. And I'm telling you, it was more than 20 years ago. because I, I don't even know if I was the head coach at Charlotte yet. And uh, the vision of, you know, where college athletics would go and all that. And so in that moment, they were like, you know, one of these jobs that you need to, you know, when, when you become a head coach and you're starting to look like understand the landscape because these bigger conferences are, it's going to be a different deal than some of them. And they're, they're going to start adding schools and it's going to grow. And I was like, wow. And we sat there and sketched out like 20 teams in four mega conferences. And, and that was way before any of the talk ever happened. So you know, I had my eye on making some smart moves in terms of making sure that if you want to win a national championship, you know, where are the resources going to be? Because frankly, you need them. You need the resources. You can have the one hit wonder, but you can't build a program year after year after year when competing against the other teams is just four times harder because you just don't have the same weapons, you know, the same ability to, to recruit or the same ability to train or the medical, you know, facilities and all those things that really, really matter. You have to have it. You mentioned that head coaches meeting at the University of Miami, right? And you see others have championship rings. And you also talked about what's next for the next step for the University of Miami program. So, and you very, you very adamantly and boldly said, I want that. So how badly do you want that? 
don't want it as bad that I would ever compromise my integrity. But all the way up until that point, I want it. Well, I meant for the purity of the accomplishment. How about that? Well, there, you know, and, and that's a thousand percent. I mean, there's no way that you're getting up in the morning grinding and, and recruiting and, and developing and pushing donors so that you can have better facilities and a bigger weight room. And you're not doing all of that to be average, you know, and the ultimate goal, the ultimate thing is you win your last game of the season. And um, I haven't done that yet. And that needs to be done here. Well, when you do that, can you, you got to come back on the podcast. Okay. Okay. We'll do that. And then we'll go to Napa and drink some wine. <laughs> oh, please. Well, I was going to ask you, I just want to go to the lake house. I'll just take South Carolina. I mean, that's, I don't need to go to now. You don't have to fly me out. I'll drive. Okay. There's the deal. That, mark that in stone. That's easy. So Katie, you've been awesome. I told you off air. I've wanted to do this forever and I'm glad we did. And I'm so happy that we ran out of time because you're coming back for part two. Absolutely. And wow, what a great job you did researching and making this easy. This was easy. I, 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 you did a great job. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks.